There we go. So for all of you who remembered to change your clocks this morning, uh, congratulations. Um, I could never get the time right this morning. I just said I'm going to get up as early as possible, as possible and hopefully make it right. Uh, this morning, uh, we will continue our series on grace. Because grace is so broad, I think we're talking about whatever we want to and just <laughs> putting grace in there. I really appreciate last week this, uh, to, um, to struggle with uh, God's sovereignty and our free will. I'm surprised we didn't resolve it since, you know, the church has debated this for 2,000 years and hasn't resolved it. <laughs> But uh, it was an excellent time, and in one sense, we're going to continue on that, but on an extremely practical level. So I'm going to talk uh, theoretically, and then I'm going to get very practical and hopefully have time for you to interact with this, what I hope is God's truth. I've been told, are we being recorded back there? Thanks, Jim. I've been told that when you start a talk, that it's very good to... Um, to start with something that will grab people's attention. So this is my grabbing your attention. And by the way, what's written up on the screen, I absolutely and honestly and truly believe. So this will get you. Here's my proposition, that Jesus is not God. Come on, no reaction, come on, Jesus. Okay, let's go, boom. <laughs> A great response. I should do that too, boom. All right, let's look at some uh, passages, though. John 1:14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I can't think of a verse in the Bible that is less understandable, 100% true, but less understandable. What on earth does it mean and how on earth can we explain that the second person of the Trinity, obviously I do believe in that, you can rescind your booze, the second person of the Trinity became flesh. Now I don't know about you, but growing up I had these ideas that, uh, well, God created a body and then Jesus indwelt that body, but that's not the same. Or that the word became flesh, that Jesus became man, but then when he died and rose again and ascended into heaven, that he actually went back to the way he was before. Not true. The amended proposition is that Jesus is the God-man, an identity that is his for all eternity. Now this has profound implications for us. I'll start with something actually quite small, maybe not that important, but I did serve in Poland for 14 years and then a break in Moscow and then back in Poland for two more years. And Poland is very Catholic, which I respect. There's great things going on there through the Catholic Church. But I must have had the following conversation, I don't know how many times, a dozen times. And that is, well, Roy, Jesus is God, right? And I go, yes. Jesus is God. And Mary is the mother of Jesus, right? Yes, Mary is the mother of Jesus. Well, that means Mary is the mother of God, right? And I go, that can't be right. And the reason it's not right is that Mary is the mother of the God-man. And this is important. We're going to see this later on, that this distinction that Jesus became flesh, the second person of the Trinity, 
He is God in the flesh. And this has profound implications for us in our life. So this is my proposition. I don't think any of you have any problem with it. But I'd like for us to discuss what are the ramifications of this. Let's look at, um, now, for this morning. Uh -huh. Here we go. What I would like to talk about today is that it is my opinion, and I believe I'm right, is that Jesus lived his life here on earth as a man in dependence on the Holy Spirit. When we read through the Gospels and we see the miracles, we think, well, he was God. Okay, when we see the various things, you know, when he knew people's hearts, we go, well, he was God. And we lose the power of the fact that Jesus, and I hope my next verse is, let me see what my next verse is, yes, is that when Jesus became flesh, the first thing that happened, according to Philippians, is that who, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, et cetera, et cetera. But there was an emptying of himself, not of identity, not of his deity, but a willingness of putting aside of his powers and of his abilities in order to become flesh. We see this in verses like this. Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the second coming. I actually had a student on campus one time ask me this question. He goes, he read this. He opened up his Bible and he read it. He wasn't a Christian. And this verse was preventing him from becoming a Christian. And Jesus is speaking of his second coming. He says, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. How is it possible that Jesus, who is united with the Father, second person of the Trinity, doesn't know the day of his own coming? Well, the reason is, is that he has set that privilege aside and he is living in the power of the Spirit and depending and knowing only what the Spirit wants him to know. And he's living here as a man and does not know the, the time of his coming, not because he couldn't, but he chooses not to depend upon himself, but to depend upon the Father. Another verse, and it came about one day, this is in the beginning of his ministry, that he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come, just a second, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Now, doesn't that phrase, the power of the Lord was present, doesn't that imply that there were times in Jesus' life when the power of the Lord was not present? If it was present 100% of the time, why would Luke even bother mentioning this. I would tell you that it's not that the Holy Spirit wasn't with Jesus, but it wasn't God's timing, and therefore the Holy Spirit was not providing power to perform healing at various times in Jesus' life. He lived here on earth as a man. I think we see this, oh, this is important for a second reason, and that is in terms of who Jesus is for us. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus lived on this earth as a man in the power of the Spirit and suffered the same temptations that you and the same temptations that I experienced. 
Because of that, he is our great high priest. Because of that, he can represent us to God. If he did not live on this earth as a man, then he is not our great high priest. What's more, he's not our model. He is not someone for me to follow because he simply did it in the power of his, uh, of his own strength as the second person of the Trinity, which has, frankly, nothing to do with me. But if he denied his own strength and lived here in the power of, of the Spirit, then I can follow him. I think this is well represented when we look at the temptation of Jesus. You all know that Jesus, at the start of his ministry, it starts when he gets baptized by John. The Spirit, in the form of a dove, comes down and as he's descending out of the water, the Spirit descends on Jesus. Excuse me, while he's coming up out of the water, the Spirit descends upon Jesus. And immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by the Lord, to be tempted by Satan. And it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. So let me ask, have any of you have... Had, have any of you fasted for an extended period of time? There's Rich. Oh, I, no, no name, sorry. Uh, theoretically, I'm not supposed to do this, but for the sake of teaching, I'm going to share my own experience. Uh, when I was asked to become the director of Russia, uh, I won't get into all the details, but one of the things that I did was that uh, the Lord led me into a fast, and I fasted for 17 days. Not 40, but 17 days, just water. It's true what everything I had read, uh, read about was true, is that the first three days, pretty bad, hungry, but I can handle that. Headache, can't handle that. And the headaches were bad. So think of it as fasting with just water and a whole lot of aspirin. So, but after the third day, you're not hungry anymore. You just, you're kind of indifferent. You know, the family would sit around the table and eat, and I'd sit there like a bump on the lug, just watching them eat having not much emotional energy. Now, I never made it to 20 days, never mind 40 days, but everything I've read about fasting is that when, when you feel hungry again, which is roughly for most people on the 40th day, this is your body saying, I've used up all the reserves that I had, any fat you might have had, any muscle you might have had. I've burnt that all up to keep you alive. And I'm giving you this sign of hunger that you must eat or die. So this is the situation here. When it says here, it's very important. Oh, did I? I didn't forward it. My fault. Here we go. When it says here that uh, he became hungry, what it is is saying is that he's at the point of death. He either eats now or his ministry is over. I'd like to contrast this with Moses. I know this is a little long. So he, Moses, was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, the Lord. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. You see a difference. We're going to get back to this passage when we get to practical application. But you see a difference is that Moses is kept alive supernaturally by the power of God. 
Jesus is living as a man, not eating, and when he hits the 40-day mark, just like every other man, he is hungry to the point of death. So what happens to Jesus? We know the story. And the tempter, Satan, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. So my question to you is that if you're dying literally of hunger and you have the power to turn stones into bread because you're the Son of God, what's the sin? Where's the sin in this? I, don't, I, I need to swallow, so you talk while I swallow a little bit. Or maybe, here, I'll blow my nose. Would someone please? Where's the sin in it? If you have the power to turn stones into bread and you're dying of hunger, what's the sin? I got a lot more to say. Don't get stuck here. That Satan asked him to do it, maybe? Okay, that Satan asked him to do it. What else? Rich. Your whole mission is to rely on the Spirit. Your whole mission is to rely on the Spirit. Anybody else? I am hearing a voice. That who God wanted for him. Okay, very good. Portraying the experience that God wanted for him, that Satan, the evil itself, is asking, and that his whole ministry is to depend upon the Spirit. Let's just read on. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I think this tells us what the sin is. Jesus is saying to Satan, I haven't heard from the Father. I have not had the word from the Father to turn these stones into bread. And so even though I have the ability, I will die if that's his choice, or I will wait until he gives the command, and then I'll turn the stones into bread, or he'll provide for me another way. The sin would have been one of self-reliance. Now this flies right in the face of our great old American culture which I'm not really being critical of. But we pride ourselves on being self-reliant. I have seen Christian movies. I've seen my organization make a Christian movie. They were interviewing uh, an NBA champion uh, who had won the championship, who was a Christian, good man. But he starts off by saying, you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe in yourself. And I would go, I think the point is, is that we need to trust and rely on God not in ourselves. And that Jesus lived here in dependence on the Holy Spirit. There's several verses, and I only picked a couple of them. I could have put at least eight, but I think more like 10 verses up here, where Jesus says something like this. Jesus therefore answers and was saying, whoops, I keep forgetting. Two screens. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, and let us something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. In a different place, Jesus says, I can do nothing unless I first see the Father doing it. In a different place, he says, I say nothing unless I first hear the Father saying. And it's a picture of this relationship that Jesus has as a man living on this earth in total dependence upon the Father. He says, um, 
I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will. But the point here is he does nothing. That means nothing on his own initiative. And one more. Here we go. One more. Jesus is being challenged about by whose power and whose authority does he cast out demons. This is the point where the Pharisees are accusing him of casting out demons by Beelzebub, in other words, by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, but if I cast out demons, not in my own power, but by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, I'd like to look at one event in the life of Jesus and the apostles which will help us bring this home. Now, you all know about the feeding of the 5,000. And then what happens after the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus sends them all away. In fact, we can just read it. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away after feeding him. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So let's set this up for you a little bit. I'm assuming that it's evening when Jesus feeds the 5,000 with the help of his disciples. How long it takes for them to then gather all the, the crumbs and put them into basket, how long it takes for him to dismiss the disciples and give them a command to go to the other side. How long does it take for him until he finally goes up to pray? I don't know. But let's just say at the very latest, the disciples get into the boat while it's already dark at 8 o'clock. You know, he sent the crowd away starting at 5 or 6, something like this. So how many of you have been to Israel? Probably a fair number. What's the, one of the most shocking things, at least for me, one of the most shocking things? You stand on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and you go, it's a lake. In fact, it's almost a pond. What are we talking about? I could swim across this thing. I, I can swim a long way. <laughs> At its widest point, it's probably about five miles, if I'm not mistaken. And it's longer this way. And Jesus is probably, he's on the east side. He's asking them to cut across to go back to Capernaum. We're talking about, I don't know, five, six miles. Who's in the boat? Fishermen, thank you. I thought everyone was falling asleep here. What have these fishermen doing their, been doing their entire lives? They've been rowing boats out on the sea, right? It's a pretty simple command. Are they disobedient? No, they're submitted. They want to do what Jesus tells them to do. They get in the boat and they head off for the other side. And when, it doesn't say here, Okay, in the, uh, oh, in the fourth watch of the night, first watch of the night, six to nine, second watch of the night, nine to 12, third watch of the night, 12 to three. It's the fourth watch of the night. It's no, can't be any earlier than three o'clock, it might be later. How long have they been out on this pond? Yeah, it's been eight, that's four plus three, seven hours minimum, and maybe nine. And they can't get to the other side. Why? Because the wind's against them. This isn't one of those, there's a storm, there's no thunder and lightning, there's no rain, it's just the wind is against them. And they're good fishermen, I'm sure they've gone, they've tacked, and they've rowed, and they've changed places, and they can't get to the other side, in spite of the fact that A, 
They're completely submitted to the will of God and trying their very best with all their experience to do what God wants them to do. And what does Jesus do? He goes up to the mountain to pray, to spend time with his father. His father obviously confirms to him that he's supposed to get to Capernaum. He comes down. Look, anytime it says mountain in the New Testament, think hill. I mean, <laughs> these, these things are not tall. This is not the Rocky Mountains. He comes down the hill to the seashore and said, well, in the power of the Spirit, God's directing me. I will depend upon him. And he comes walking across the water. Do you see the contrast here? Is that how many committed Christians, myself included, are trying to do what God wants us to do because we love the Lord and we've heard him and we know we're supposed to get from here to there and we are trying in our best efforts and can't get there. Now, the wind is opposition. It could be opposition from Satan, the demonic opposition. I've experienced that. It could be opposition from the government. It could be opposition from friends. It could be health. It doesn't matter. There's simply a prevailing wind against you, and you can't get where you need to go. And Jesus shows us how. He comes walking on the water. Now, if you think I'm making this up, that Jesus lived here as a man, I think the next passage proves it. So there's this thing that the disciples get afraid, which I would too. It's not every day. I've always wondered what does this look like. If there's wind, then there's waves. Is Jesus walking up one side and down the other? Is he wading up to his knees? We don't know. I'd like to know that. This person comes walking across the sea. In one of the passages, it says that they don't even recognize him. and They cry out. They think he's a ghost. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Tremendous words of encouragement. It is I. It is I. And Peter answered him, reading from this passage now. Yes, I, we will read from the passage as soon as I change it. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. So let's finish the picture. Peter got out of the boat. What did the other 11 do? What? Or they stayed in the boat. Why? Scripture doesn't say, so we get to speculate. Why they stay in the boat? Okay. Okay, I agree with that. That's that's my first answer. Any other reasons? Okay, you're in the boat. We're not getting let's let's get involved here. You're in the boat. These are people just like us. You're in the boat, you've spent your life on the water. Jesus says to one of your friends, hey, come on out and join me. Why do you stay in the boat? Afraid of drowning. It's very probable that they did not know how to swim. That's a third great reason. Three great reasons. One, to see what happened. Two, fear. And third, they weren't commanded. Anybody else? Yes? It wasn't logical. Nobody does that. Right. <laughs> And I think that almost sums up our Christian life. We'd rather watch someone else do it and see what happens. Okay? Two, fear, and we should not overlook that. I experience that every day. Well, maybe you don't, but I do. Okay? Uh, three is that, have we heard, do we really know what Jesus wants us to do? Have we heard him? Have we spent time with him? And four, and I am not the kind who says you need to put your brain aside. I don't believe that. 
We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and with all our strength. So we are to love the Lord with all our mind. But I do have a problem that if it's not logical and if it's not rational, well, I ain't doing it because it just doesn't make any sense, right? And that's what holds us back from stepping out in faith. Roy, in defense of the, other, in defense of the others here, Yes. It's striking to me that Jesus isn't like, hey, Peter, come out here. Peter's right. like, I'm going to do this thing, right? Like, Peter initiates this conversation. This is Peter's idea. Yes. So, like, I, I'm a very cautious person. I could absolutely be like, why do you, you know, why? He didn't tell you. He didn't tell you to do that. You, that was your idea. I love Peter because I am not similar to him because I'm very measured and I, eat, I tend to think before I open my mouth most of the time. <laughs> But Peter is, you know, you are the son of the living God. We love him for it. And Peter is the one who says, hey, if it's you, command me to come out. I'm willing to test this. And we love that simple faith. And may we grow to be like him. I'd like us to talk, and there's going to be hopefully more conversation now, about what does this mean for us? Because this is all maybe interesting, maybe not, but I think it can be very practical for us. In the passage in Ephesians, Paul writes, and don't get worried about the first part, do not get drunk with wine. It doesn't say don't drink, it just says don't get drunk. For that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. This verb here, be filled with the Spirit, I did a study once on being filled with the Spirit. And the New Testament seems to identify two different things. One is in the book of Acts, when it says, and filled with the Spirit, he spoke. Literally, every time it says, and filled with this, and Peter filled with the Spirit at Pentecost, spoke. Stephen spoke. It just, Paul spoke. It just goes on to on. Filled with the Spirit, spoke. It was like an anointing that gave them the power and the words to say. But the letters, and also the book of Acts, when it describes Stephen as being a man full of the Spirit, seems to describe a lifestyle. And if we had time, we'd look at all the participles that come after this, uh, singing to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a command to us to be filled with the Spirit. Well, there's a whole lot of literature about being filled with the Spirit. And you can go anywhere from no criticism, just difference, Toronto blessing to Dallas seminary dispensation. There are no such things, et cetera, et cetera. What on earth is this command that Paul is telling us to do? about being filled with the Spirit. Well, if you look at John 15, which we don't have time to, about abiding in Christ, if you look at Galatians 2, the exchange life, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Galatians 5, walk in the Spirit, you kind of come, excuse me, you come up with something like this. Being filled with the Spirit is when God directs us and empowers us. In other words, he gives us commands, gives us directions, leads us, guides us, all different kinds of verbs here. But not, he not only does that, but he empowers us. And when I first heard this, this didn't make sense to me either because, okay, that's what God does, but what is my responsibility in this? And it took me quite a while for me to understand that my responsibility is that God directs us and empowers us when we are submitted to him and dependent upon him. Now, I'd like to go back to what this whole year is about, and that is grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved, i.e., it is God's initiative first, not only in salvation, but in our sanctification. So this being submitted to him, I spoke on a year and a half ago, 
an extreme submission even in the face of suffering, of being obedient even when it makes no sense to be obedient, of, of, trust, of submitting to him even when from a human standpoint we're being treated badly by God himself. And I'm sure you've been there and so have I. The other thing is by grace is that we can, like Jesus and like the apostles, depend on him to do what he's asking us to do. And Jesus leads and gives us the example of how to do that, of denying our own experience and our own strengths and instead depending upon him. I've been in the ministry, this is embarrassing, I've been in the ministry 45 years. And one of the biggest struggles or problems I face is that I'll encounter a situation and go, oh, I can do this, I've done it before. So who am I depending upon at that point? Myself, my own experience. And it's not like God doesn't use our gifts or doesn't use our experience, he does. But my attitude needs to be is, Lord, I'm not depending upon myself, I am depending upon you. So that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So now we're going to have a discussion because I'm going to call us to task. When I read the prayers of the people three or four weeks ago, this is what we all, I, I said these words, and all of you said, Amen, Lord have mercy, which means you all agree. So this is what you agreed to. We pray to the Lord for the courage to give up other things and to give ourselves to him this Lent. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you gave up something for Lent? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand. Um, I would like to say, if you haven't, I would encourage you, there's still three weeks till Easter to do that, but I'd like you to think that that is half of what we're talking about. Let's go back to Moses. Let me get this up here. So we read this before, so I'm just going to go back to, to about the middle where it says, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come to him. And in the very beginning, it says he did not eat bread or drink water 40 days and 40 nights. So you can't go much longer than 40 days. In fact, most people can only go 40 days without food. How long can you go without water? Three days. Maybe in extreme circumstances, there have been cases where people might have gone four or five, but the vast, vast majority of people survived three days. So how does Moses survive up on the mountain without water and without food? Right. Who is? Direct, the answer was, for those listening at home, the answer was direct interaction of, with God. Let me phrase it, being in the very presence of God, who is? Water of life. Say again, Matt. The water of life. The water of life, who is life himself. And because Moses was in the presence of God, he was filled with the life of God and lived on that very life. This is an example for us. When I did that fasting for 17 days, I ended because the Lord said, you're done, and here's what I want you to know. He led me to this passage, and he said, I want to be your life. I want to be the air you breathe. I want to be the bread you eat. I want to be the water you drink. And this, let's get back to Lent. 
we all have strategies to get through our day. And we all depend upon things to get through our day. Now it could be, I just can't relax until I read a book or have a glass of wine or uh, watch TV or eat some food or we do various things to kind of calm ourselves down so that we can deal with life again. I do. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm assuming most of you do. And the Lord is saying to us during this time, but frankly, during the whole year, but especially this time, my, I was with our granddaughters, three of our granddaughters yesterday. Lucy's the oldest. She's nine, and they're Catholic. So she gave up candy for Christmas. And if you knew our oldest granddaughter, she is a sweet monster. I mean, there's just this, not a sweet out there that she doesn't want to eat immediately. And for her to give up candy was really quite impressive. But it's not about giving up candy as much as it is about giving up candy and turning to God for that life that we were trying to find in the candy or the TV or the book or the wine. I unfortunately have a very good friend. He was first a disciple and then the way that works in the church is he became my director. And... Um, he just lost his wife very suddenly. He wasn't expecting it. Um, and he realized after he buried Tamara that he was depending upon wine. In fact, he calls himself an alcoholic. Now, he doesn't get drunk ever. He's in the ministry. But he was realizing he couldn't get through the day without wine. And the one glass to help him get through the day was becoming two glasses and then three glasses. And he's, he's now going to therapy, and this is all good, but he won't find any salvation or sanctification in this problem by just turning away if he doesn't also turn to the Lord who is our life. And we take the pain that he's experiencing with the loss of his wife. I think I can relate to that. The loss of his wife or the loss of your reputation or the loss of your dreams or the loss of your love, whatever it might be. And you take that pain and go to God and ask him to meet you in that pain. And it doesn't mean that he takes the pain away, but that he walks with you through it and as Gosha said in that very, well, most of you didn't get the last letter that she wrote to our supporters, where she said, I don't understand, this is my wife for those who don't know, uh, who also just recently passed away. She said, I don't pretend to understand God's plans for me. That's her way of saying, I don't agree with God's plans for me. <laughs> but you know, you tone it down because you're a missionary and you're supposed to be spiritual. So, I don't understand God's plans for me. But he is good and he is sufficient. And he has given me peace and that is enough. Even as he didn't heal her and he took him from myself and from my wife. So the first part of our practical application, I don't think I got there. The prayer of the people. Oh, okay. So the first part of our practical application is in our walk with the Lord. And it's going to be a lifelong process of turning away from those things we're relying on and turning to God to find our life and him being our source of joy and hope. 
And it's a, it's a process. I was going to say this at the end, but I'm afraid I might run out of time, so I'll say it now. What happens when Peter gets out of the water? Takes a few steps, we don't know how many, hopefully a lot, and then what happens? He sinks. And I've heard a ton of stories about, well, Jesus, Peter took his eye off Jesus, and he looked at the waves, and he got distracted, and kind of blaming Peter for this. All well and good. But the point of that is, what happened when he sank? Yes, Jesus reaches down and picks him back up. And as Howard Hendricks said, how do you think they got back to the boat? They walk there. We will fail in our walk with God. And Jesus is going to reach down and pick us up. And I don't care if you've fallen so that, you know, up to your nose or worse. He's going to reach down and pick you up. And you will walk back to the boat. What's more, you might fall getting back to the boat. I don't know. But for this Lent, think of something that you're depending upon. It's only three weeks left. Talk to the Lord. Make sure it's his desire, not yours, to put it aside. And then make a conscious effort to turn to Jesus to find life and joy in him. Let's keep going. Prayers of the people. I promise we will have some discussion. May the blood and water flowing from the side of Jesus, oh, that's later. I don't have a screen for this next thing. First thing is our walk with the Lord. Second thing is in our relationships with each other. I can almost guarantee that everyone here has a relationship that's just in conflict or difficult or something. And this is what I would like to challenge you with. I'd like to challenge you to get out of the boat of where you are in that relationship right now. Now maybe it's you need to go and confess something. One of the best things about Gosha getting very sick is towards the end, we confessed everything. I mean, all the things I never wanted to, we confessed everything because we didn't want to part having unconfessed sin. Why on earth did I wait to that moment? Wouldn't it have been better to confess sooner? There was no unconfessed sin between us. Maybe there's something you need to confess. Worse, maybe you need to go confront someone. And the Lord is literally putting it upon your heart that you need to say, brother, you're just caught. And I'm here to help you, but this really can't continue. Harder, maybe you've been sinned against. You know what? Forget maybe. You've all been sinned against. And you need to forgive. And you can't. I'm asking you to consider getting out of the boat of that resentment. Because resentment will turn to bitterness. And walk towards Jesus. And ask him in his power. And literally like Corrie Ten Boon says in her book. When she's confronted after the war with one of the guards who persecuted her and her sister. And this guard reaches out his hand to shake her hand because he's become a Christian. This Nazi guard has become a Christian after the war. And she can't move her hand. She cannot shake her hand. She cannot forgive this man. And she quickly prays, Lord, I can't forgive him. I cannot forgive him. Please let your forgiveness flow through me. And as an act of obedience, she begins to reach out her hand and God fills her with his forgiveness for this person. I've been sinned against like that. I have, and I'm sure you have too. And God is asking us to depend upon him to forgive, to love, to show an act of kindness, to say something, 
to ask forgiveness. I don't know what it might be, but I'd like you to think about that. And then finally, prayer of the people, and we will discuss this a little bit. We pray this together. May the blood and water flowing from the side of Jesus bring forgiveness to your people and help us face the cost of proclaiming salvation. How many of you like to share your faith? I'm going to put my hand down because, no, I don't like to do it. Now, my wife did. She couldn't sleep if she hadn't shared her faith. And I go, well, good, you do it. <laughs> you know, it makes me uncomfortable. I fear. There's a certain rational part. Uh, it's just all the ridiculous things. Whatever you're feeling, I feel that in spades. And yet, it is what God has called us as a church to do. Now, I've been here, and I probably only get about five more minutes. I've been in the States for the last three and a half years because of Gosha's sickness. So I've come back to this very strange country called the United States of America, where the culture has changed drastically in the 45 years that I've been overseas. And I've actually met with a few of you, and I've met with some other people. I've asked the question, how on earth do we proclaim this salvation? So now I'm going to throw that open. How do we, I mean, we all said amen, so now you're on the hook. You, you need to be careful. You need to listen to what's being prayed and say, do I agree with that? And if you say yes, then we're on the hook. Andrew insisted that, I talked with Andrew about this. Andrew insisted if I threw it open to you, you would all have great ideas. So, <laughs> any thoughts? Over there. Yes. Well, our house group is reading a book by uh, Henry Nowen, and one of the passages that from that book is each person has to have uh, receptivity and that confrontation ability in order to proclaim that salvation. But after discussion in our, our group, our small group, we, we would add timing. Okay, so there's a question of timing. I'll add something to that later on. Anybody else? Rich. Agreed. It's what I fear. I think, it, I think it depends. Each one of us might be called to um, live out our faith in a way that's a little different and uses our skills. Um, for some people, that might just be a coffee date where you are openly talking one-on-one. -on -one. For some people, maybe that's you know using your gifts to do broad, sweeping things in the community. I don't know if there's any one way to proclaim the way of the Lord, but do you think that whatever it is that you're being called to do, it will utilize your gifts. It's going to utilize your gifts. And so this, the necessity is to be, to be in relationship with the Lord so that you're understanding what your mission is. Because your mission will look different than mine. And that's what makes it hard to say. I 
can guarantee that you all have a job to do. Hmm. I can't tell you what specifically that job is. Uh, but we all have to be in this relationship with God to find those urgings of that pointing in that direction to do it. I mean, that's what makes it hard. So I would love to pursue this further. I'm, I, first of all, I agree. Our training in Moscow, actually it was in St. Petersburg, um, we actually asked some people to write down the names of 20 people that they know. And these were church people coming for training. And then they didn't know what was coming next, and so everyone wrote down 20 names, and then we said, so uh, now cross out everyone who's already a Christian. And some people crossed out all 20 names. Research tells us that it takes seven years for someone who's not a Christian and becomes a believer, it takes seven years before his contacts become all Christian. And he loses contact with the non-Christians. So the first step, if I could encourage you, and Joy is absolutely right. What I'm saying may not be right or what others are saying, you do need to walk with God in this. But I do want to throw some ideas and suggestions out. Is that... Um, our training then talks about, so how do you meet non-Christians? And then, believe it or not, the training is, how do you even talk to them if you're not talking about the gospel? Well, here's a way, if I could build upon what you said. You know, people get together and they talk about sports or they talk about the books they're reading and they talk about the movie they're reading. If you're reading a book in your house book, in your house group, you could actually say, you know, I'm reading this book and it's really strange. I don't claim to understand it all. Or you could invite them. To the group. Um, the way we ended up in general is first it's called prayer and then care and then share is praying for the people that God puts on your heart and making a list so that you pray for them regularly and then taking the initiative to ask them what's going on in their lives and then telling them that you will pray for them and then checking back and sometimes you have the most interesting conversations as people, I remember one time I asked Vince, my neighbor, I said, so how can I pray for you? And he goes, I've never thought of that. I have no idea. I wouldn't even know what to say. And he came back two weeks later to tell me what he wanted prayer for. There's a variety of ways. My challenge, what I would like to ask you to do is don't stay in the boat. The fear, the rationality, everything we talked about before, I experienced that. I am not comfortable sharing my faith. But I don't want to just talk about sharing my faith or your faith. In your relationship with God, what are you depending upon? Set that aside for these three weeks and turn to God for that life, that support. In your relationships with each other, God is probably leading and asking you to do something, confess the sin, confront, forgive someone, say a word of encouragement. Don't stay in the boat. Turn to God, say, I can't do this on my own. Please give me the power, and then step out in faith in doing it. And in this, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, don't forget we are called on to be a witness, and that be willing to step out of the boat. If you, if you want to talk more about this, I'm available at different times. But I'd like to leave you with the image of 12 dedicated apostles trying their hardest to row across really a very small lake. They are obedient. They love Jesus. They're trying to do what he said. And Jesus is showing them, you know, in the power of the Spirit, if he calls you to, you can even walk on water. Let's get out of the boat and see what God will do.
Thank you. Two things I forgot. One is, obviously, I've said this, but I'll say it again. This church came alongside Gosha and I in more ways than you can possibly imagine, and we are, I guess I have to say, I am so, so very grateful. And second is, last week I showed everyone the article from my previous talk. Chris Norton wrote that, and he is in the back. If you need help with writing, go see Chris. Thank you again. <laughs>